Hello and welcome to The Stack. Today we speak with Jay Fielden, former editor-in-chief of Esquire, Town & Country and Men's Vogue. He tells us about his latest projects and the state of men's magazines. Also on the show, Debbie Ray is here to tell us about the revamp of Crafts Magazine. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a man that helped to define men's style in the last three decades, as editor-in-chief of Esquire, Town & Country, and Men's Vogue. We had an interesting conversation on the state of magazines today and his latest projects. Here is Jay Fielden. Jay Fielden, first of all, welcome to Monaco 24, to The Stack. A pleasure talking to you. I mean, looking at your CV, it's impressive for any fan of magazines. But first of all, tell us, what, what are you up to now? Because most recently I read a poem from you, a New Yorker magazine, which, I mean, that's a must-read for everyone. But tell us, are you into poetry? Tell us a bit more about that side of yours. Thanks, Fernando. Thanks. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it. And uh, I worked at The New Yorker when I got out of college. I got a job as a typist, which was one of the ways in back then, meaning you would retype the edited manuscripts at the time into a computer system. You know, they were kind of moving away from cutting and pasting into computers, if you can believe it. This was 1992. Uh, now it feels like a thousand years ago. And um, and, and I eventually became a, an, a, a young editor in the fiction department. I stayed at the New Yorker for about nine years or something like that. And I had come out of a college experience that having studied English literature and et cetera, I, I you know, loved poetry and I thought a lot about poetry and I even began writing poetry and I published some, a poem back in that time when I worked at the New Yorker around 1996, 97 or something. And, and then circumstances kind of pulled my focus in other directions. I, I went on to be the arts editor of Vogue and then I created Men's Vogue and edited that and, you know, went on to Town & Country and then Esquire. And and I just, even though I've always been a writer and I've tried to keep my quill, you know, wet, so to speak, I I wasn't really paying attention to poetry. And partly it's because I think I convinced myself that, you know, is it a relevant genre of literature anymore? I mean, of course it's relevant, but I mean, does it have enough impact? It's, it takes so much time to write it, at least for me. It just felt like, I don't know, why. every time I sat down to write a poem, the thought bubble would pop up in my brain of like, why are you doing this? I have three kids. I have all these things going on. You know, how can you carve out time for something like this? Are you being silly? Is this like, you know, watercolors on Sunday or something? <laughs> but I went back when I left, after I left Esquire, I went back to kind of immersing myself in some of the things that I loved so long ago and, and reread a lot of things and I was always a big lover of, of John Milton and Milton, not only as a poet, but Milton as a figure, he's a fascinating character and, and not just poetry written in that period, but I, I love T.S. Eliot. I loved Elizabeth Bishop. I loved a lot of different poets. And so anyway, it just came back to me, like, why did you ever let that go? You know, you enjoy it, etc. So I, uh, I started writing poetry again and, and that poem appeared in the New Yorker and I, you know, continue to do that now. I'm, I'm I guess I'm dedicated to trying to um, 
you know, maybe even write enough poems where I will have a book one day. So that wasn't exactly a haiku as an answer. That was that was the perfect answer as well. And 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 again, talking about literature, I mean, you edited uh, Squire. I mean, the title is very related to the world of literature as well. So is that something that always attracted you for all the titles that you've edited in a way? Yes, of course. I mean, I, I grew up in Texas, in San Antonio, a pretty sophisticated town, but, you know, not New York. And I got kind of bit by the bug of writing uh, when I was about 14 or 15, having before that time not had really almost zero interest in books. I was not the kid who read a lot, you know, as a youngster. I just, I didn't want to read. I didn't, I wasn't attracted to it. I was much more interested in being outside and not being in a classroom and certainly not doing anything a teacher wanted me to do. And, but something happened, a kind of epiphany of some kind, some, some moment where I fell off my horse, you know, so to speak, and a, a ray of light hit me in the eyes. And then I, then I became a reader and, and really wanted to be a writer. And it set me on this kind of, it gave me a compass point that pointed to New York, pointed to the New Yorker, especially, and, and Esquire, because I, when I, when I got that job as a typist, at the New Yorker, I had applied for a job as an assistant at Esquire and didn't get that job. So I ended up working at the New Yorker instead. And then many years later, coming back to Esquire in a kind of ironic way. But those titles, and even even when I got to edit Men's Vogue, create that and edit it, you know, I wanted to find the right way doing, to always think about what the title, what the mission of the title is, and then create the right kind of writing for it that would, of course, in some ways, reflect my taste and my ambitions, but, but not be just a, a show-offy or, or silly, I, I don't know, indulgence on my own part, you know? So I think when I, when I did Men's Vogue, I, I did actually get amazing, amazing people to, to write for the magazine. Robert Hughes, Jeffrey Steingarten, a number of the New Yorker writers, because I'd known them, really an amazing group. And yet I think it was appropriate to that magazine, which was very much aimed at a kind of pretty sophisticated guy who had already grown out of some of the other men's magazines and had kind of didn't have something to read that really was both stimulating intellectually, but also really good looking and about style and, and not really apologetic about liking nice things. I think the same thing kind of happened at town and country. I was able to infuse that with the right kind of literary touch, not trying to be too heavy handed, but getting really interesting, well-known writers to write for it. And then of course, when you get to Asgard, you kind of have it all come together. You have a magazine that has the historical horsepower that any magazine in America ever had, if not more. Uh, Esquire, unfortunately, has not been great at projecting it as much as, say, The New Yorker has. But Esquire, you know, had Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Faulkner from the beginning. And then as you go along in its history, you're going to get to Joan Didion and Gary Wills and Norma Mailer and Tom Wolfe and Gay Talese and... <laughs> You know, it's uh, Cormac McCarthy, you know, it's extraordinary. I mean, it goes all the way up until I would say, I hope, you know, it, it was a very award-winning magazine even in this century. So I, I really love that it was a magazine that had made a case for itself for many decades that you could be both a guy interested in the way you dressed and the things you ate and, you know, maybe what kind of car you drove and what watch you wore and those kinds of things, but could also be quite serious about 
ideas and writing and that kind of thing. And I mean, the, no better example was what is there than Saul Bellow writing, I believe, in the 80s about his favorite spaghetti recipe, you know, and not having to feel like he was exposing himself as a shallow person who only wanted to write about food. <laughs> so I love that combination. How do you see men's magazines today, Jay? Because, of course, we're talking a lot about The New Yorker. I think The New Yorker is a magazine that, I mean, remains fairly similar to what it used to be. I mean, but it's still a great magazine, Scout. But I think men's sure. magazines have been through some changes. And, I mean, probably you lived uh, throughout. I mean, how do you see the market today? I think it's quite a volatile market, you know, it, it had to change uh, quite a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't say that it doesn't make me sad. I have to be honest. I, I don't think they are what they were. And I don't even ascribe to the idea that, oh, well, now they reflect something. You're just, you know, somebody who wants them to be like they were and they can't be like that. They have to be something else. And, you know, that's fine. But I just don't think that if you were to compare them to what they once were and account for the changes and the fact that they should be different versions and they should reflect the times in a different way, I don't think they do it in a manner that is close to the kind of imaginative approach that that they had in the past. And I think there's, you know, good reason for that. The money doesn't exist anymore with the companies that own them to invest in the editorial or the look or the feel of the magazine. The frequency has dropped precipitously as well as the readership in terms of the paper version or the print version. Newsstands are hard to find. I mean, it's I I go in and out of Grand Central and you know, Grand Central used to be almost like a mecca of the newsstand. There there would be a in the middle of the station a, a thousand square foot newsstand full of every possible thing printed on paper around the world. And now it's peanuts and candy bars and interesting new types of chips and bottled water and about eight foot wide wall where there's magazines. So I'm not saying there aren't good reasons for this in some ways, or there's, or I wouldn't say good reasons, but there's not a terrible amount of difficulty in somehow out imagining the restraints and, and the and the kind of conditions that any editor would find themselves in. But I just think that the whole effect of the web has made people kind of in general want to be told what to do by their audience rather than finding things that their audience doesn't know about that the audience will be excited about, you know, kind of that old idea. You either believe that what Steve Jobs said, I want to make things that people don't know they want or need. So if you just ask them what they need, they're going to tell you the things that they already know exist. And that's important to, to obviously know the data and, and to use the metrics through digital, the digital experience, the website and, and, and all the other things. But I think if that's your only guide then you're just going to be reflecting the moment and not really having a point of view that's interesting about the moment. You're just too much a regurgitator of, of what is instead of a leading thinking magazine that is crafting a point of view that helps people un understand the world better and is is stimulating and, and exciting. So I get I, that's a long-winded way of saying it. I, I just think that they've become in that way, kind of not most of them, not enough different from what it is you can find almost anywhere. I don't know that I need to go to a quote unquote men's magazine to know what's going on in the categories that they cover because it's so covered by everyone. And the way they cover it, to my taste at least, is not focused enough to make me feel like that is an original 
point of view that I need to know about every month or every week or every day even. I agree with you completely because, for example, I grew up, the Brazilian playboy, for example, if you wanted to know something about politics, interviews, I mean, the best content was there. I mean, of course, you know, that was kind of the yeah. reason. It was the magazine to be read. Probably in the US, you had Squire, perhaps even Playboy. And I think that's what's missing, a little bit of kind of even some journalism content, some long-form pieces, great writers, as, as you were mentioning there, uh, from Esquire. Do you think that's one? Because, of course, fashion, fashion again, is very important, but... I think those magazines, they used to have it all, right? They used to have that part, yes. but also the, the, the long form. Yeah. That's true. I mean, I, I, it's very difficult. I mean, it's easy to say because I think that there's probably nothing harder to edit right now than a general interest magazine. And that's why the success of The New Yorker is so extraordinary. You know, in an age when your phone knows what you like and tracks you and then feeds you those things, it is kind of a, a robot editor, right? Trying to trying to give you a general interest experience, whether it comes from your own Instagram of memories, or I mean, your own uh, fo photo, you know, the photos you've taken that it's constantly feeding you, or or the the other push notifications that somehow you get, or you know, all the apps that you have. In other words, you know, you can spend endless amounts of time being entertained across a number of different types of topics, from news to to gossip to scandal to intellectual material, you know, deep literary material, the phone kind of does that for you. So the question is, how do you create a magazine that competes with that and becomes a thing that a person would want to grab before they grab their phone almost, because there's only so much, as we all know, there's only so much that the brain can take in the course of a day in terms of bopping around from this to that, to that, to that. So I think that's what makes hard it makes it hard to be a journalist magazine where you're doing a little bit about drinks, you're doing a little bit about watches, you're doing a little bit about travel, a little bit about, you know, what's going on in Europe, a little bit about Hollywood, a little bit about this. Th those are, that was kind of the great formula of excellent magazines like, you know, Vanity Fair, Esquire, The New Yorker, you know, Town and Country. I think that was what they are. They were general interest magazines angled in at a very specific population, but they covered all those different things. And made you feel kind of like, if I read this magazine this month, I, I kind of got it, right? I know what's going on. I know what people are talking about. I know what movie I should see or, or, or not see even, you know. I feel like I've been informed. And now, I think, to somehow create a thing that stands above the noise and insanity of the digital world and has some kind of sense of consequence and therefore deserves your time above these other things is extremely difficult. And obviously it's expensive, you know, like you mm -hmm. have to have, you know, the New Yorkers, you know, I'm sure not cheap to produce. There's a lot of really brilliant people who, who, you know, are on that team and that's what makes it remarkable. Right. Whereas so many of these other magazines for business reasons have been watered down and the people that maybe really had the authority and, spend enough time in the salt mines learning their craft and having experience but therefore being paid a little bit more than maybe the company would like to pay maybe traded them out for somebody with a lot less experience <laughs> and so you get something that you know it's okay it's it's okay but it's not visionary it's not a distilled telescope you know vision of something that you look through a telescope and you see this remarkable exciting highly detailed world that you really want to jump into absolutely uh jay i just want to talk about some of your other projects as well i mean 
you you've been writing this year like a satirical line of Valentine's Day's cards. I mean, I thought it was quite yeah. funny, but that's that's quite unusual. Tell us a bit more about this project as well of yours. Well, I was approached by Doers, the Great Scotch, to in a hurry come up with these this idea. They've relaunched or they've kind of recalibrated Doers Twelve, the twelve year old bottle of, of Scotch that they do so well by doing some really interesting things to it. You know, like, and I think in making it more complex and an interesting pour, as they say. And they had this clever idea of have me write 12 different notes, quips, if you will, hopefully they're funny, that when you went to the doer site and had decided to send your good friend or, or loved one or wife or girlfriend or boyfriend or what have you, a bottle of the 12 year old, you could choose a note that I had written to go with it. So that was kind of the project. And it was a lot of fun to do. And you know, it was hard, I have to say, like, you know, coming up with one liners that are have a kind of Valentine's context, but play against the Valentine's typical treacly messaging when it comes to a card and making it touch on various cultural things going on, you know, took some time. I, I think that my sense of being able to write short lines with meter and and and, and sharpness was very helpful, but it was it was a real challenge, and I enjoyed doing it. Fantastic. And Jay, just finally, I'm, I'm just curious, because I know you're from Texas, and and here at Monaco, I, I don't know, we're looking quite a lot to Texas recently. We did a conference in Dallas, and, you uh, know, apparently there's a very interesting media scene there in Texas. Do, do, you, do you see that in the U.S.? Do you see that perhaps some of the media is moving away, perhaps from L.A. and New York and going... To places like Texas and Dallas, I just wanted to see uh, your views on that. I do. I, I mean, I've thought a lot, a lot about this as well, and just in terms of thinking about what it is I might, you know, jump into if it was a media thing again. You know, I've been beyond doing stuff like the collaboration with Doers, working and of all places in the finance world, I'm kind of a, a digital content newsletter, website strategy fixer, and I've done that at Bridgewater, the hedge fund, and now I'm doing a lot of this work at the private bank at J.P. Morgan, which I actually find really interesting. And it it's pushed me into the whole world of economics and finance and all that and made me know it in a way that I never did before. So, But in the course of doing these things, just, just kind of buy time and, and think about what it is I might do. I mean, I've, I've thought about creating my own digital newsletter and I've thought about it in terms of geography and I go down to Texas a lot and another magazine I like actually is Texas Monthly. I think they're a great example of maybe what you're saying. They've been around mm -hmm. a long time, but but again, touching on the general interest idea, what makes them obviously work as a general interest magazine is that their vertical or their specificity is Texas, right? So that gives them this kind of unique territory to to own. And it's a fascinating territory, as you know, not just because it's Texas and Texas has kind of got its own, you know, everything, but because of all the people moving there, Austin is an, has risen to be one of those towns in my mind that is really more defines itself than the place that it finds itself in, right? It is a Texas town and otherwise, but it's almost its own island, a little bit like New York or LA or something like that. There's actually a really interesting piece about Austin by Larry Wright in The New Yorker last week. Um, he lives there, and he's a longtime New Yorker writer and a Texan. 
so I, I, whenever I go down there, I do see these kinds of small zines or newsletters or things like that cropping up to express the cultural milieu of that specific place, almost the the media terroir, if you will. And I think even though there's a Texas Monthly kind of covering all of Texas, well, there's there's a good reason to be doing a magazine that's just about Austin in the same way that you can do a magazine that's just about Palm Beach or just about Aspen. So I, I think that we used to, you know, at the at the big magazines, we used to kind of look down on the geographical magazines, not Texas Monthly, that one always, obviously a remarkable magazine. But, you know, if you looked at like Ocean Drive or some of these things, you know, they felt kind of thin and shallow. Um, now, I think, as you can see by also a really interesting magazine, Garden and Gun, they've really captured a sense of place um, in a way that a magazine from New York can't really do. So I think there are there are definitely opportunities like that. And I think we will see that what I'm talking about, this kind of specificity being visited on, on the general interest recipe that has been long approach in magazines being applied to specific geographies like you know for instance garden and gun if you think of the southeast new orleans is not near charlottesville particularly but there is a real sense of that part of the country the southeast sharing a lot of things that they love that from grits to hunting to bourbon to red velvet cake to Faulkner to go down the line that has given proof positive to the fact that you can create a magazine around that kind of sensibility and, and set of interests. And finally on the show, Crafts Magazine has been through a revamp. Now a biannual title has been freshly redesigned and doubled in size. To tell us a bit more about the changes, Editor-in-Chief Debbie Carey stopped by at our studios here in Midori House. Debbie Carey from Crafts Magazine. Welcome back to The Stack, but a different title this time, right, Debbie? Thank you for having me. Oh, it's always a pleasure. And first of all, I mean, looking at Crafts, I knew the magazine before, Big change. I mean, it's it's. You look already on the cover. Of course, the theme. A lot of things they remain. I mean, it was a great magazine before. But tell us about some of the changes and and impressively, even the design already. I mean, I love the font, by the way. It's really good. Yeah, I'm glad you like it. It was designed by St. Steve Fenn and Tom Pollard, the design studio that we work with and started working with for this redesign. Um, it might be helpful to give a bit of context to Crafts. Um, for those who don't know it, it's published by the Crafts Council, which is the national charity for craft. Um, it's been published for 50 years, so it was founded the year after the Crafts Council was founded, and its aim has always been to support makers and, and platform excellent making. And that's remained the same broadly, I think, throughout. But as we all know, what has changed is the publishing environment around it. So people don't read as much in print as they did 50 years ago, and obviously... Nobody read online 50 years ago. I think also a kind of there's an expectation of interactivity, which has come about in the last few decades that didn't exist at the time. So I think COVID was also a bit of a catalyst for change for us. You know, I think for everyone, we were rethinking business models and thinking how we could do things differently. So we spent the last year totally rethinking the magazine from scratch, everything from the business model to how it looks to how we publish it. We used to work with an external company and we've brought everything in-house. So the major changes really are that we've gone down from publishing six times a year to twice a year. 
but each magazine is now double the size. It's 200 pages. We've invested more in paper, printing and design, which is something that we couldn't have done really with the six times a year publishing schedule. The gap between the two issues, obviously, it's six months between each issue now. So we fill that with more digital content. We've introduced a paywall for Crafts Magazine content onto the Crafts Council website. And the other element of it is more live events, a programme of events across the year. We have a gallery in North London, in Angel, the Crafts Council Gallery, and so it's an opportunity for us to collaborate a bit more with them. And we've tied the whole thing together with a membership platform. Now that we publish in-house, we are able to have a, a bit more control over our readership and more a direct link with them. And so we use a platform called Steady, where people can control their own accounts and we have a closer connection to them and also have worked to develop a kind of offer of perks and, and member member offers and allow people to select between tiers so they can choose whether they want to access digital content or print or live events or all of them. I was going to ask actually about the subscription model because it's, it's slightly different because it's not just a magazine. There are other kind of perks as well. Crafts, I know, has a very uh, strong digital presence, but when it comes to sell do you sell in new stands or in select places or is it perhaps subscription is your main kind of offering when you sell the magazine? It's a combination of both. We're in selected retailers. I think we've we've done a bit of work to rethink where we should be and I think we now realise that the place to be is alongside similar cultural magazines and not mm. on every single newsstand. So there's been a bit of a rationalisation of that. And we're in galleries, you know, we're in the Haywood Gallery at the moment. There's an exhibition about about clay that just happened last year. And so, you know, we've tried to identify points at which it makes sense to be in certain places. But our primary focus has been on this membership. We see it as a kind of all around 360 offer with print being a big part of it, but not the only part. And I think that's kind of the the central way we'd like to think of it. But obviously we understand that membership's not going to be for everyone. So you can buy it when you want and not necessarily sign up. It's good to have the options. Mm. And, and it's remarkable. The magazine is 50 years old. That's incredible. Not many magazines can say that. What has been the reaction of the traditional crafts reader? Because, of course, when the magazine comes a little bit less, of course, some people might complain. But I have to say, I mean, you did make it up for it because it's a, it's a more beautiful publication. I mean, visually, there are more pages, there's more content as well. But how has it been the reaction? I know the autumn winter has been out for a few weeks now. It's Yes, this was out in October. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting question because I think something that I think I knew but didn't really fully realise is how attached people are to this magazine. Mm. There's people who've been reading it from the first issue and, and I hear from them and, and they tell me about how you know, it's been part of their lives and it's such a community in that the people who read it are also the people who are featured in the magazine. So there's a huge, important attachment that people have to this magazine and I think that's something that we've been really conscious about recognising through the process. And being mindful, we did a lot of focus groups, we did reader surveys, so so this is it didn't come out of the blue, you know, we did our research. I mean, the reaction has been amazing. It's been almost entirely positive, which is just, it's really good. And I think it's been really heartening for us to understand that we're on the right track and we're doing what people actually want us to do. And so that's been incredible. Obviously, we knew we weren't going to keep everybody happy, but it's really been, the, it's been a minority reaction. The negative reaction has been in the minority and it's primarily around this shift two issues instead of six issues and more online editorial, which I think just reflects the fact that a lot of the readers are very attached to having six issues and understandably want to keep them. And of course, 
that's why we've kept the print. You know, we could have got rid of it entirely, but that was never on the cards for us. And you didn't, and so much so that it's actually, as I said, it's a beautiful product. I mean, it has been, yeah. you know, there's been a lot of attention towards it. Uh, yeah. And what about in terms of the content? I mean, of course, you know, it's, it's craft. And did anything change? Because I know visually it does look a bit different. But what about content-wise? I think in terms of approach, it stayed... It, there's been a slow evolution, I think, over time in recent years. Anyway, I've been I've been working with the magazine for about four years now, starting out as a freelance contributing editor, and I've only been the editor for about a year or so. But we have moved it, I think, in keeping with the way that people... Our audience has shifted over the years. It's more global than it used to be, and it tries to situate craft in a wider global cultural context rather than only focusing on makers, which is, of course, still important, and that's still what we do. And I think that's remained. What, I guess, has changed is just practical things. You know, we don't do time-sensitive exhibition listings, which we did in the previous iteration, and everything's more timeless, everything is long lead. We want people to be able to keep the magazine for the six months and then and then continue to hold on to them and feel that it has some relevance, but without becoming a book, because I still think there's value to this being a moment in time, even if it's a longer moment, I think, than it used to be. I agree, I agree. I mean, it's a magazine. We, yeah. we both like magazines here. And even the cover-wise, I mean, we have Jay Blades here, stunning cover, I love the use of photography. But it, it, it's quite fashion as well, in a way. It, it does look quite cool as well. There's a certain kind of... Uh, I, I think that changed as well a bit, the way you photograph people. I mean, not, not I'm not saying celebrity-like, but I think it, it did look quite nice. Yeah, I mean, we're working with new designers who have their their own eye and approach and we really wanted to I mean part of it is magazines are fun and we want to Mm. have fun with it you know of course you can do exactly what people ask of you or what's safe and what people feel comfortable with but I think it's also an opportunity for us as I don't want to overinflate it but we you know we are also the crafts people of the magazine world we wanted to have fun with it and make something that we feel happy with and enjoy and you can do that with photography typography with the writing and why not you know it, it looks different and that reflects the interests of the team I suppose you know I mean this is a bit of a random question but what are the challenges of editing a biannual because we know the good things like you have a bit more time to think and kind of dedicate more time but at the same time you really have to choose your stories carefully because you will be in the newsstand or you know or available for subscription for a slightly longer time absolutely I think I mean, we've only done one of the biannuals so far, so it remains to be seen. But so far, so, so good. Far, I mean, so good choice. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, there's a there's a joy in that extra time that you get to think of it and not having to be super time sensitive. <laughs> there's that. It's a really boring practical consideration, but sometimes stories just drop between things, and you just can't you can't feature them because something relevant happened two months before you went to press or or just after. And we're having to be much more selective. You know, we always have more ideas than we can ever ever use. But, you know, I think that these limitations are good in a way because, you know, you get used to just doing too much all the time and sometimes it's good to have constraints and have to just choose and, and decide and commit to certain things and that's what we have to do. But we do have 200 pages, so it's still quite a lot. <laughs> no, but I, I like I like your answer. And Derek, of course, give us a little preview of the next issue. I know probably you can't say too much of it, but when is it coming out, actually? So it'll be out in mid-April, so that's the spring-summer issue. This one was autumn-winter, and so that's the kind of schedule we'll be, we'll be doing from now on. We have a themed section in each issue. So in the current one, it was about cotton, and that relates to an exhibition that's on at the Crafts Council Gallery at the moment. And the next one is going to be about growing. So it'll explore 
makers and craftspeople who think about their material from the very beginning, how they make it as well, how they grow the material as well as how they then make it into an object at the end and considerations like looking after the land and rewilding. So it's still being formed, but that's, that will be part of the magazine. I've done an interview with Theaster Gates, the artist, so that's going to be one of the features. There's an interview with one of the world's best-known sari designers, Subyasachi, and he's going to be in an exhibition coming up at the Design Museum in May, so that timings work out quite well. And there's a lot else in the pipeline that I can't yet talk about, Good. partly because they're <laughs> half-formed ideas so far. <laughs> That's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Adam Heaton. And if you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. And we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Before we go, a little song for you. New Order with Crafty. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Música